0: Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. This episode features a talk by Toshihiro Nakayama, titled How Japan Handled the Trump Shock and Learned to Live with It, Understanding Japan-U.S. Relations from a Japanese Perspective. Nakayama is a prominent Japanese public intellectual a professor of American politics and foreign policy at Keo University in Tokyo, and a journalist. This talk was given in Madison in fall 2019.
1: Well, thank you, Professor uh, Young, for that kind introduction. And I thank uh, the Center for East Asian Studies and, and Professor Fields, and also the History Department for hosting me here. Uh, and I was wondering what my three hat is. And uh, (laughs) as a journalist, uh, I'm not that active anymore, because I stopped writing the column for Japan News recently, right, right. But But (coughs) I'm on TV sometimes, and uh, I was on TV on the election day of 2016, live live television. This was a US presidential Mm -hmm. election special. (laughs) And of course, as, uh, as many of us were, uh, I, I thought you know, I was pretty confident who was going to win. Right? Uh, but uh, it didn't turn out as I expected, so it was a, a major public embarrassment for me. And that you know, students come up to me and why do uh, we have to sort of trust you in, in, uh, on American politics and foreign policy? You were publicly totally wrong about the results. So it's a a tough subject for me to teach uh, these days you know and, uh, and and most of all it's really difficult even for you know uh, people living in Washington to understand and explain what's going on and uh so it's not uh, uh you know it's 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 a very a tough subject to teach these days and uh you know the Kelly University which I teach at was established by you know, I call him Benjamin Franklin of Japan. He was like a thought leader. Uh, He wasn't a politician, he was more or less a scholar, but he was uh, really keen on sort of modernizing Japan and sort of laying a foundation for Japanese uh, higher education. And when he was uh, relatively young, he visited the United States uh, two times, I believe, Uh, uh, when back in 1860, and I think uh, 1867 or something, and when uh, he came here, uh, quite naturally, he asked where the sort of the descendants of uh, the first president, George Washington, was. And no one had the answer. So he st- instinctively understands what sort of democracy is. Right? It's not about sort of, kings and prince, princes and all that. Uh, and uh, he sort of uh, uh, sort of looked into the future and understood sort of instinctively that for Japan to become a, a modernized nation, it is important for Japan to understand sort of the logic of uh, democracy, what U.S. is like, and all that. So when he came back, uh, he translated uh, Declaration of Independence into Japanese. Uh, he studied uh, the U.S. Constitution. And, of course, at the time, Japanese uh, elites and intellectuals were tilting towards, you know, the other side of the Atlantic, Europe, quite naturally. But Fukuzawa, uh, he understood uh, it was critically important to, uh, to learn the English language and the uh, American political system. Uh, <clears throat> so I am, like, uh, 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 it's, it's an honor for me, and I, so you can consider him as a first Americanist of Japan, and uh, uh, although he is, he is not you know, categorized in that way, uh, but I think you can categorize him in that way precisely because of the things I've, uh, that I've mentioned. And uh, I'm sort of honored to teach uh, uh, you know, American politics, American foreign policy, uh, and U.S.-Japan relations at uh, Keio University. So I was, uh, by training, uh, an Americanist, and I am a, a board member uh, of uh, Japan Association of American Studies. And this, uh, this group or this association is quite interesting because it was even uh, uh, established before the American Association of American Studies. This was established back in 1946, right after the uh, end of the war. You know, the, the war ended in 1945, right? So there was an acute awareness in Japan that uh, understanding uh, the United States is critical, cri- uh, critical for Japan to recover and become a mature democracy. It was partly a U.S. operation, you know. That was to tame uh, sort of the anti-American sentiment in Japan. So it was a tool for that. But I guess there was an, a sort of intellectual curiosity or the the, the or the urge to understand uh, America, <coughs> uh, uh, you know, just after the war. Right? And uh, so this uh, association sort of uh, uh, sort of reformulated itself and it relaunched. Uh, In 1967, uh, 1966, I'm sorry. And at the time, in Japan, the uh, sort of anti-American movement was quite rampant. Uh, As in other Western democracies, there were student revolts, just as you had student revolts here Uh, uh, in Madison. Uh, And and you had sort of student revolts in Europe, and there were student revolts in in Japan as well. And in, in Japan, one of the main sort of pillars of the <coughs> student revolts, revolt was uh, uh, going against the U.S.-Japan alliance and of course U.S. Sort of involvement in Vietnam War. So it was a very difficult period uh, for uh, uh, U.S. in Japan and U.S.-Japan relations at the time. And <coughs> I think uh, this anti-American sentiment was uh, quite strong uh, in the uh, late 50s, 60s. And, and in fact, in, back in the 50s, when President Eisenhower uh, tried to visit Japan, the first time a US president sort of sought to do so, he had to cancel the visit because you know, the uh, anti-American demonstra- demonstration was quite strong. Right? So at the government level, Japan was consistently pro-American and was for US-Japan alliance. But at the sort of the civil society level, the feeling was uh, very mixed. There was uh, uneasiness about relying on uh, the United States in terms of, uh, you know, security, and uh, in terms of, you know, what kind of society that we want to be, because <clears throat> back in, of course, those days, the other alternative, right, the socialist alternative, was at least among some people, was a serious option and in Japan there were a group of people who thought that was the better option so it was us japan relations again at the governmental level it was always uh, consistently for that relations at a civil society level it was more mixed so it was uh, there was definitely uneasiness about uh, relying on the us and adding to that you know the pacifism that was sort of uh, 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 portrayed in Article 9 of our Constitution, peace constitution, which was drafted by the American occupying forces <coughs> uh, uh, back in the 1940s, uh, uh, was also quite uh, influential. And that uh, you know, I, I think this pacifism sort of uh, saw Japan relying on US-Japan alliance uh, as a uh, you know, thing that we had to overcome. Right? But things have changed since then and uh, uh but for instance like in uh back in 1980s <clears throat> there were some politicians who, took, who portrayed US Japan alliance as a military alliance right? uh he had to sort of uh you know uh, uh, sort of back off and say that you know i i, I, I sort of phrase the relations uh, in a in a wrong manner uh because alliance sounded so like, dangerous and militaristic. Right? We couldn't even call US-Japan alliance an alliance. That's how sort of pacifism was per- pervasive in the society. We, we called it like US-Japan alliance system, because if you put a system on it, it sort of neutralized the <laughs> tone of the alliance, right? Or like even like, in schools, I, I, I think I almost never heard the term alliance. I always heard phrases like US-Japan uh, relations. Which almost meant alliance, but we, we almost never talked about it. Right? That's how uh, sort of a pacifism uh, a pervasive pacifism was back in the days. But uh, nowadays, I think uh, no one's really reluctant about uh, portraying U.S.-Japan relations as a military in a military alliance. Right? So things have changed uh, a lot uh, since uh, back in those days. So the uh, cabinet office is conducting a, a, a poll every year, uh, you know, the perception uh, sort of, U- of U.S. among the Japanese public. Right? And uh, I have some numbers here. And, and this is, again, conducted by the cabinet, cabinet office of Japan. And uh, if you, it, this, this number is back in 2016. So this is the, the last year of Obama presidency. Right? And by the way, President Obama... Uh, although, and I'm going to go into this later, but uh, although he was a, uh, he was seen uh, uh, with a bit of skepticism from uh, foreign policy and national security establishment, because of his uh, engaging uh, attitude toward Asia and because he didn't see great power sort of uh, competition as an important uh, factor in East Asia, uh, the security, uh, uh, foreign policy and security establishment was sometimes... Uh, uh, a bit worried about Obama's uh, commitment to the alliance and to the region. But <clears throat> among the Japanese people he was a really popular figure, especially because uh, his visit to Hiroshima, of course you know, first by the American president, uh, was a very moving experience for the Japanese people and uh, uh, it's like 98% of the, the Japanese people appreciated uh, his visit to Hiroshima. And as a sort of reciprocal visit, uh, Prime Minister Abe next year uh, went to uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. You know, of course, uh, first uh, time for a Japanese Prime Minister. So it was a good sort of symbolic moment for both countries who fought the most fierce war, I guess, in, in human history, for that matter. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, reached a reconciliation, you know, without accusing each other. Uh, so that's. You know, partly the reason why President Obama was really popular among the people. And so back in 2016, if you ask the Japanese people, do you feel sort of affinity towards the United States, Uh, 84.1% of the Japanese people would uh, answer positive. That's a a pretty strong number. And uh, questions like, do you think U.S.-Japan relations is important? Uh, 87.1% thinks it's important. And if you ask the Japanese public, uh, do you think uh, U.S.-Japan relations would be important in the future? 95% would answer yes. So this is a strong number. Uh, This is not the kind of number, and this is, you get it almost constantly, right? So this is not the kind of number you usually get in a democracy, in in an open democracy. It's like conducting a poll in Saddam's Iraq or Assad's Syria. That's only, those places where, is the only place where you get like 90% constantly. But in Japan, on the image of the U.S., that's the kind of number we get. Right? So what, what, what's the number in 2017, the first year of the Trump presidency? Right? In fact, you know, uh, uh, the number is not bad. It's pretty strong. Uh, ask the same question, affinity towards the United States. It's 98.5%. Like, maybe 5 to 6% drop, but still a strong number. Uh, uh, is the relations important? It's 84.4%. Like, uh, 3% drop. And is it important uh, for, for Japan in the future? It's 95%. It's exactly the same. Right? So... <clears throat> You can see that uh, how strong uh, and how sort of Japanese people see uh, or understand importance of the U.S.-Japan uh, relations and alliance uh, for Japan. And if you compare that with other Western democracies, uh, you know, like uh, Germany, France, and UK, and, and some of the others, I think Japan stands out. stands out right? I think we were uh, quite successful in uh, absorbing uh, the Trump shock. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, we're uh, sort of uh, uh, men, uh, uh, people make fun of that because we are doing too much, right, uh, uh, sort of giving expensive golf clubs and and sort of mingling with Mr. Trump and all that. (laughs) But, you know, I think uh, if you look look around the world, uh, you see or you don't see many leaders who has managed uh, the personal relations, uh, the chemistries, between both President Obama and President Trump. And I would say maybe Prime Minister Abe is the only one who has managed both relations. Uh, Chancellor Merkel, she had like perfect, excellent relations with President Obama. But her relations with Trump is quite bad. Right? Uh, what about uh, uh, Netanyahu? Prime Minister Netanyahu, his relations with uh, President Obama was quite bad. Right? He uh, spoke at the joint session of Congress, literally criticizing uh, Obama just before <coughs> U.S. and Iran agreed on a, a, a Iran nuclear deal. Right? It was almost like a intervention into domestic politics. Uh, but his relations with uh, President Trump is quite good. Right? So you see, you know. Uh, one one leader of of a certain country uh, establishing uh, good uh, relations with one of them, but not with both. You don't see too much of that. And I would think, at least among the major countries, uh, (coughs) Mr. Abe is the only one. And the interesting factor is that the Japanese people more or less support uh, Prime Minister Abe's embrace of Mr. Trump. You can't sort of uh, you know, imagine that in Germany or in UK or in France for that matter. Right? When uh, Mr. Trump was scheduled to visit UK and visit London, uh, the expected sort of demonstration against his visit prevented him from going to London. Right? Uh, you know, same sort of thing happened in, in, in Germany, uh, although he did go to <coughs> Berlin. And that uh, the reason i guess is that because you know not maybe not mr trump himself but the trump phenomena and what that represents sort of resonates with what's happening in europe as well like in case of germany you see alternative for deutschland or alternative for germany which some say is a quasi neo-nazi movement maybe if that's going too far it's clearly a populist nationalist movement right? and brexit could be categorized as a populist nationalist movement as well. And you see that in France in the form of Le Pen and sort of surrounding movements. And it is a, uh, you know, a, a political force there. So that is challenging this notion of o- open society in common Europe and uh, you know, a European sort of experiment, experiment for that matter. So they see in the Trump phenomenon uh, what sort of resonates in their populist nationalism. So they have to, in a way, uh, Trump, Mr. Trump seem and quite naturally, would be endorsing Trump phenomena, meaning that it seems like Trump, Mr. Trump, and the Trump phenomena itself is sort of endorsing the dark side of what's happening in Europe. So that's why uh, uh, those leaders in other Western democracies try to keep a certain distance with Mr. Trump and the public would never be comfortable with their leaders totally embracing Mr. Trump. But in in case of Japan, there isn't that sort of uneasiness about it. People basically support what Mr. Abe is doing. Why is that? I guess there's several reasons. Uh, One is that, you know, uh, Japan lacks this surge and rise of populist nationalism. Uh, So the people in Japan do not see or understand the dark side of Mr. Trump, uh, dark side of Trump phenomena, precisely because we don't have a sort of a corresponding movement uh, in in Japan. Uh, The reason why we we lack a populist nationalist, there are populist nationalists like fringe movement, or democracy, I mean in democracy you always have fringe movements, but it doesn't have the sort of the dynamism and the power which, uh, uh, which would sort of determine the sort of the course of a nation or something like that, right? So the reason why we don't have uh, a populist nationalism is that you know, compared to other countries, uh, Japan is a relatively uh, 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 mono-ethnic society. So we haven't uh, faced the difficulties of a multicultural society uh, as you are facing every day. And, and, and that is one reason that's preventing uh, uh, the rise of uh, populist nationalism in Japan. Uh, one of the reasons uh, uh, you know, in Germany you see a rise in uh, alternative for Germany or populist nationalism is uh, Chancellor Merkel's dis- the, to, the decision to open its doors to you know, refugees, immigrants from the Middle East. I think she was determined that because of the German, uh, German past during World War II, that, it had, that Germans had to show that it was an open society and open to uh, refugees. But it didn't quite work out that way. Right? The, it had an unintended consequence. It sort of uh, triggered a rise in populist nationalist movement. Uh, here, the same. Right? There's, a, there's a sense that society is uh, changing as a result of uh, you know, people coming in from outside and that you know uh, some people are cl- clearly uncomfortable about it and you are sort of uh, uh, facing a difficulty in sort of facing the others right uh, is this sort of multi- multicultural society uh, uh, the right direction for the united states i think it's that kind of debate that you're having and that became a sort of a uh, 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 sort of a uh, 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 sort of a base or a ground for a trump phenomena to to surge and have uh, influence so one reason is that we don't have that. Yes, Japan has become more diverse uh, compared to a couple of years ago. You see, you walk, you walk in towns, you, you walk into uh, convenience stores, and you see you know, foreigners you know, that you didn't used to see in, in Japan. But still, compared to others, we really haven't faced the difficulties and the challenge of the multicultural society. And that's <clears throat> partly the reason why Japan hasn't seen a surge of uh, Sort of a populist, not uh, nationalist movement, and secondly, and uh, I think uh, uh, you know Japan is a relatively traditionally oriented society. It's it's a very structured society, and and uh, and also this uh, social grievance uh, uh, in the society is I think relatively uh, uh, you know. Uh, compared to other societies. Right? We do, I'm not saying that Japan doesn't have any problem or anything. We do have a lot of problems. But compared to other cities, the, the level of social grievances are low. And one of the reasons why is that, uh, like, uh, the, uh, the, the example that is uh, quite often cited is the difference between the salary of uh, you know, the executive at the, the corporations and the, the salary of uh, the regular workers. Right? Mm-hmm. Of course, there are you know, you know, they're different. But the difference is not as high as you have it here. So, yes, there are of course rich people and poor people, but the social grievance <coughs> itself is relatively lower uh, in other countries, so the sense of you know being left out uh, is uh, uh, you know, weaker in uh, compared to other societies that is uh, widening, so that is a social issue but that's one of the reasons because grievances is one of the the uh, uh what do you call it? the uh the source of rise of uh, populist nationalism, right? and <clears throat> some others, uh, like uh, the, the role of social media in Japanese society, uh, uh, somehow the social media has not penetrated the political sphere and the public sphere, and we think that 's good. Right? many politicians try to use uh, social media as a tool, but mostly in vain somehow, and that uh, You know, there's no politicians attacking, at least a major influential one, attacking uh, someone on Twitter. Uh, You don't see that. Uh, Some politicians try to use Facebook as a political tool, but they haven't succeeded all that much. Uh, We don't have like 24-7 cable televisions where they have to sort of fill the news, you know, every day, all the time. So we still rely on network news. We still, to a certain degree, read newspapers you know, in paper. So uh when my students start reading newspapers, right, you know that they're getting ready for job hunting. Because they want news from the newspapers, right? Maybe it's a, it's an iPad sometimes, but still, I mean it's it's the equivalent to newspapers. So there's a filter to it. You know, it's it's tailored to the the society what kind of news you should be consuming. Right? So I think that sort of uh the, uh, you know, the, the political sort of uh, emotions, uh, you know, this uh, sense that you have to sort of crush the other side. It sort of uh, avoids sort of political polarization. So the fact that uh, uh, social media hasn't penetrated uh, the Japanese political f- sphere is, uh, I think, a good news. And that's one of the reasons why it has prevented Japan from sort of lapsing and diving into a uh, uh, <coughs> populist nationalist movement. So that's one, right, this, uh, the lack of populist nationalism sort of prevents uh, uh, Japan, Japanese people from seeing uh, uh, you know, the, the dark side of uh, the Trump phenomenon. Uh, but even more than that, the reason why the Japanese people sort of embrace, uh, uh, support uh, Prime Minister Abe's embrace of uh, Mr. Trump is, that, is the geopolitical situation that we're facing in East Asia. And East Asia is a very, you know, I would say, a region of uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, immense possibilities. Right? Uh, if you're talking about sort of a, uh, you know, a dynamic region sort of around the world, I think you would have to point to East Asia. Uh, yes, of course, you know, Africa has a potential to rise, uh, and precisely because countries like China is investing in Africa. I think countries like the US and Japan needs to invest in, in Africa as well. Uh, But to enjoy the fruits of the rise uh, of Africa, it would take some more time. Uh, Europe is always an important partner for the U.S., uh, but it's not a surging, rising region in terms of economy or trade. Uh, Middle East, uh, it's mostly about dealing with difficult issues, trying to sort uh, 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 sort of contain potential threats. So U.S. has to be engaged to a certain degree, but it's not a region of potential. Right? So it's East Asia where U.S. has to uh, <coughs> uh, engage. But there are many hotspots as well. There are many territorial issues. I mean, we, we always thought terito- ter- territorial issue was uh, an issue of the 19th century. Right? We, we more or less uh, we overcame that. That's the perception. But not in East Asia, there are lots of uh, territorial issues. Uh, 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 out of that, sort of many territorial issues. Japan is, uh, in fact, involved with uh, quite a few. Uh, we have territorial issues with Russia, you know, the northern territory issues. That's how we call it. Uh, we do uh, sort of uh, contest with Korea, on, uh, 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 we call it Takeshima. Uh, the Koreans call it Dokdo. Uh, Koreans sort of occupied an island, although Japan is not physically challenging it. We, we claim that it is our own island. And also, there's an issue uh, on Senkaku, which we call, and the Chinese call it Diaoyu Islands. We don't see it as a territorial issue because we see it as our territory. But uh, China doesn't understand <laughs> that way; they, they see things differently. Uh, so, you know, there are some issues, right? uh, very sort of uh, uh, hard, contentious issues. Uh, you know, there's issue on Taiwan, Korean Peninsula. So these issues could spiral uh, into, uh, or it could be sort of dive into a negative spiral and uh become a physical sort of a kinetic uh <coughs> kind of contact so uh it is a dangerous situation but out of all that what is the most uh, uh sort of uh you know issue that's uh, being uh watched closely and the 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 issue that worries uh you know us in uh east asia is of course the uncertain direction of china's rise quite naturally uh It's not the rise of China itself that worries us. It's how they're rising. And uh, I think that Chinese people uh, don't even fully understand where it wants to go. I'm not sure whether there's a full consensus on where it wants to go. But if you see the action of China, and if you add those, if you pile up those actions, uh, Chinese action in the South China Sea, building... artificial islands, Uh, challenging uh, uh, Senkak Islands in a very uh, sort of explicit way Uh, 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 using uh, uh, not a navy, but a a heavily armed coastal guard, fishermen and all that. It clearly seems like it is challenging the status quo. Uh, And the the, the fact of the the, the physical size of China in, in itself, and the speed in it, it, the way it's rising creates great uncertainty and makes uh, countries around the region pretty nervous. And of course we see, when we're talking about sort of geopolitical conditions, uh, to a certain degree, we look at the positive side, but we also have to focus on the negative side as well. And on the negative side, we see an ambition that China is trying to uh, establish a, a China-centric order in East Asia. And I think there's a more or less consensus on that ambition right, uh, outside of China. So China is not making too much friends in the region. But how to deal with that rise, you know, there is no consensus. If you look at Southeast Asia, uh, they would talk, you know, this is the phrase that they often use, right, geography is a fate. China is right up there. If we can't shape China's rise, and Southeast Asia could not shape China's rise, right? And if you can't shape China's rise, you might as well adapt to China's rise. That sort of sentiment is quite strong and quite pervasive. Vietnam may be an an exception, Uh, but other Southeast Asians, although they're, they're uncomfortable, about the way China is rising and the way they're pressuring Southeast Asia on South China Sea and other important issues. They uh, see themselves as uh, uh, having no options but to adapt. And they would also add that it's better for US, uh, uh, Japan supporting its presence. It's, It's nice that US would be a resident member in East Asia and sort of balance, not contain, balance China's rise. But in Southeast Asia, they would also add that, you know, I said China is always up there, but US can always leave, right? And US is sort of sending a message, not a clear message, but sort of sending a message that maybe we might leave, right? not totally, but to a certain degree. And this is not just a Trump thing. Uh, we heard that or sort of re-read that into President Obama's message as well. Right? So it's, 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 it's a more or less a constant, not just a Trump phenomenon. Right? And even looking beyond 2020, what if you chose uh, Elizabeth, Senator Warren, or probably that won't happen, but Senator Sanders? Right? You would be sending the same kind of message, that maybe we might be sort of uh, retreating a bit so there's a strong sense in southeast asia and sort of middle and small sized countries that no there's no no other options but to sort of adapt to china. And Australia and New Zealand was uh, kind of in that camp a couple of years ago. But I think in the past few years they've realized the so-called, you know, the sharp power penetration of china into their societies in the form of, you know, political influence. In terms of you know penetrating the universities, uh, they become aware about this uh, Chinese sharp power uh, operation, and they have become more aware about sort of uh, uh, adapting to China's rise. Right? So that's uh, 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 what's happening. Relatively uh, a new sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, phenomena that you're seeing in the past two, three years. Uh, Then what about Japan? Where is Japan at? I think Japan is the only country in the region who is explicitly saying that if we see a China-centric order, we would not think that's a good news for this region, for for East Asia, and we would somehow say no, and we're not going to join that. We may not be able to sort of resist it, but we're not going to join that kind of order. Not because we're anti-China or anything, but I think we think that the kind of order we have now, liberal, uh, open, and rule-based order, is good for the region. It's an open system. Every, everybody can participate. Japan rose in that kind of you know, uh, regional order. Korea rose in that kind of order. Southeast Asia rose in that kind of order and China for that matter rose in that kind of order. But this alternative uh, uh, and we don't know the clear shape of that of that uh, order is but we're sort of sort of you know uh, (coughs) uh, sort of uh, seeing a hint of it in China's actions in South China Sea and East China Sea and in other forms. Uh, So Japan would sort of say clearly say <coughs> no to that kind of order, uh, you know, uh, replacing the present order we have now. But can we resist to that kind of order alone? Uh, that's quite difficult. Right? If you compare the sheer size uh, of uh, Japan and China, Japan, Japan is still the third largest uh, you know, uh, you know, economic power in the world. But if you compare it to, with China, Uh, You know, in in terms of its military capabilities, you know, we have many legal sort of uh, uh, restrictions uh, in what we can do. So it's not about Japan sort of uh, you know uh, 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 single-handedly contesting uh, this uh, China's region order building. So we need a uh, a good partner join us in our effort. And uh, in the past uh, uh, couple of years, we've been enhancing uh, security cooperations with countries like Australia and uh, uh, India, for that matter. And Korea sort of used to be on that list, uh, and it is still on that list, but it's much becoming much more difficult these days because of the contentious uh, relations between Japan and Korea. And on the issue of China, I think their mentality is a bit closer to Southeast Asia, that if Uh, U.S. retreats, and that we're left on our own, we have no other options but to adapt kind of mentality is, I think, the the Korean mentality. Although there are some difficulties in uh, korea china bilateral relations. Uh, So uh, Korea, hopefully, uh, since we are both democracies, we're both allies to the U.S., uh, somehow, hopefully in the future, in the new future, we can sort of... uh, Manage the relations to a better direction, but at, at the moment, it's 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 kind of uh, unrealistic to <coughs> to say so. But you know, in, in terms of security cooperation, Japanese government has been undertaking an effort to deepen the security security ties with uh, Austri- country like secu- uh, Australia and India, and it is critically important because uh, in uh, East Asia, in strong contrast to uh, Europe, where you have a sort of a multilateral sort of security arrangement. In Asia, there isn't any. It's all sort of bilateral uh, security arrangements, sort of mainly sort of centered around the United States, right? We call it the hub and spokes alliance system. Uh, so it's, it's nice to sort of uh, establish uh, relations between those allies to the U.S. It, it, it makes sense. But can we imagine a situation where uh, China would challenge uh, the Senkaku Islands and Indian navies, you know, coming and helping and trying to sort of push back uh, China's, uh, uh, you know, aggression. Right? It's it's a bit difficult to sort of imagine that kind of situation. Right? We don't even have a formal alliance or anything. So uh, yes, it helps uh, to sort of uh, diversify uh, our security, uh, uh, you know, relations. But the only formal alliance Japan has is the U.S.-Japan alliance. You know? For the U.S., it's not that way. U.S. has many alliance partners, but for Japan, uh, U.S. is the only uh, alliance partner that we have. So there's a strong consensus. That's the sort of the background of why Japanese people uh, trust the, uh, or, or see the importance in U.S.-Japan alliance. And I mean, this is, uh, uh, if you look at other possible sort of options that Japan can consider, Many of them are so unrealistic that it's it's almost a fantasy. But just to, I'll try to sort of uh, explain to you b- briefly what kind of options that we might have right, in dealing with the kind of situation that that we're facing. We have the pacifist uh, option, right, which is articulated in Article Nine. Right? Why don't we just abandon all the sort of military forces and, and, and abandon war as a sort of a tool of uh, you know uh, uh, sort of Realizing uh, what we want, we have to a certain degree, and, and that is our position. But we do have self-defense forces, and it's a quite a formidable sort of you know, military, in quotes. And uh, uh, why don't we just abandon that and try to embrace and adapt to, you know, China's rise? Uh, but you know, Japan is a very, uh, uh, you know, located in a strategically very important location. You know, Prime Minister Nakasone called it an unsinkable aircraft carrier because of its uh, geopolitical location. Right? It's a, like I said, a, a, still the third largest economy in the world, has many sort of intellectual resources, not natural resources. So for such a country to totally abandon uh, uh, you know, self-defense would create a huge power vacuum. Right? And it would definitely dis- destabilize the region. Uh, who's gonna sort of fill that power vacuum? Probably not the United States. It's going to be someone else, and I think it's totally responsible for Japan to pursue a radical form of pacifism. It's 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 out of an option. Right? So what about the uh, the sort of the other side, you know, the the sort of the the opposite of this pacifist option, you know, Japan becoming a, a full-blown military power, uh, you know, going nuclear. Uh, developing nuclear subs, conscription, increasing defense budget, which is now only mere 1%. We could push it up to 5% or something. Uh, you know, aircraft carrier, formidable aircraft carriers. It sounds you know, very aggressive, hawkish, but I don't think this is, as, uh, this is also a very uh, unrealistic option. Uh, first of all, you know, there would be no uh, public support among the Japanese people. We don't have the money to do so. The neighbors would not like it. It would put Japan in a difficult position internationally. We would lose a sort of a moral high ground to sort of uh, criticize North Korea's nuclear development. Uh, it would be hard for us to criticize China's sort of uh, military sort of rise. Uh, so it, it would not be good for the, uh, uh, it would not be a realistic option for Japan. Japan becoming a full-blown military power. Some people talk, you know, Japan is already at that stage, as if though Japan has not become a military giant. But if you look at the legal restraints that Japan is under, uh, you know, I sometimes jokingly but sadly say that we can only be aggressive as uh, Canada or New Zealand. So the talk about, you know, hyper-nationalism and the rise of that in Japan is, I think, totally overblown, And the public sentiment is totally not there. I, in fact, want Japanese young people to be, become a bit more nationalistic in that sense. So I don't, I don't see that happening either. <clears throat> so what about like, a regional organization? Unfortunately, we don't have that in East Asia. There's many, like what we call alphabet soup organization, <laughs> APEC, ARF, uh, EAS and all that. It's a nice talking shop. It has a certain function but it cannot deal with the most critical issue that we're facing in the region. Global institutions like the UN, Security Council is supposed to sort of solve these contentious issues. It can authorize the use of military force. But you know, guess who's the veto holding member from Asia? It's China, right? And we've been raising our hands since the early 1990s that we also want to become a permanent member of the United Nations, precisely because uh, there's only one country re- represented in the Security Council, and it's not a liberal democracy. And we've been making a strong case. But to be fair, it's not only China. Uh, Koreans are not happy about Japan becoming a permanent member. But this is only not Korean. You know, nation states act that way because India raises their hands, Pakistan would not be happy. If Germany raised their hands, Italy would not be happy if a Brazil uh, raises their hand, Mexico and uh, Venezuela, would, I mean uh, uh, Argentina would not be happy. So it's not just Korea, but the, you know as a result of these dynamics uh, Japan becoming a member of a Security Council haven't been realized. Right? So Security Council is like totally uh, not usable in the, in the context of uh, uh, you know, contentious issues rising in East Asia. So, You know, it's not that hard of a logic for Japanese uh, uh, public to understand U.S. is the only option, right? So although they haven't really gone through this thought process, they more or less understand the situation that, you know, uh, uh, for Japan, uh, 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 U.S.-Japan alliance is the only option. Therefore, uh, people support, uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe's embrace of uh, Mr. Trump. But, you know, and some, some people become very cynical and skeptical, Japan is a a country without plan B. We're we're being bullied by the U.S. and we can say no to it. We can't say no to it. But I can sort of reverse that uh, argument and say that the only option that we have is the most effective option that we have compared to others. So in that sense, I guess we're very fortunate. Uh, So I've been talking about why Japan needs the U.S., right? What about from the U.S. side? Is it like like one-sided love or something? And I don't think so. I think it's critically important for the U.S. as well. <coughs> uh, I said that East Asia is the most dynamic region uh, around the globe. Right? Uh, and in fact, the U.S. has been a, a functional part of uh, uh, East Asia since the uh, uh, 1960s, 70s, where, when Kamuro Perry uh, came to Japan, to Raga, and opened up Japan to the world. Japan and, and, and US, in fact, joined the world stage almost together at the same time. It's right after you sort of, you know, uh, established a sense of nationhood after the Civil War. And that was about the time we sort of uh, 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 engaged in this uh, major restoration and uh, sort of shaped the, the, sort of the basic form of uh, a modern uh, Japan. Right? So it's, it's around the time uh, we we, said we joined the world stage at around the same time, uh, 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 you know, U.S. and Japan. <clears throat> uh, and, and since that period, uh, uh, you know, politically, diplomatically, militarily, trade-wise, U.S. was part of uh, East Asia. And if U.S. decides to retreat, it will leave a huge vacuum as well, and that will destabilize the region. And for U.S. to enjoy the fruits of the dynamic region in East Asia it's much better for you to be there, right? precisely in light of the fact that the, 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 the regional order, order that U.S., Japan, and other allies has been upholding is being challenged potentially by some other order. Right? And, and uh, you, you can think of many partners, and you should have many partners in the region. Uh, you have Australia, who's often uh, portrayed as a deputy sheriff of the United States, because they've been in all the wars that uh, that US has participated—Vietnam, Iraq, Korea, and all that—but uh, they're a bit down under. Uh, you know, in terms of space, they're a, it's a pretty big country. But in terms of you know national power, they're a mid-sized power. Although it, you know they're they're important. You know, uh, it's nice to have Australia as as your, as your sort of one of your best friend, but it doesn't sort of uh, uh, you know. Uphold fully U.S. presence in East Asia. Uh, you have countries like Philippines, uh, South Korea. In terms of South Korea, you have a formal, a formidable alliance. Right? But the the function of U.S.-ROK alliance is to solely focus on sort of, uh, on Cor- what's what's going on in Korean Peninsula. It, it doesn't have sort of the regional function. Right? So it's not seen as a public good as U.S.-Japan alliance system is seen. US Japan <coughs> alliance, yes, it, it has a role of defending Japan, <coughs> but more than that, since the end of the Cold War, the bold size has successfully sort of transformed the US Japan alliance into a sort of a regional stabilizing force, which is seen as a public good. So in the, the early 2010s, we had a change in government. Right? We had a, a, a Democratic Party of Japan, which was a newcomer and And the alliance sort of destabilized uh, you know, at that time, and we used to sort of uh, get a complaint from our friends in southeast Asia that don 't sort of mess around and play around with the alliance because you know this u s japan alliance is important for us as well right? so this uh, this public good nature of u s japan alliance makes u uh, s japan alliance relevant and makes Japan you know a more or less a relevant uh, uh, a partner for, for the U.S. And other elements like you know Japan being a, a, a very mature democracy helps as well. That makes U.S. and Japan share values in terms of the liberal democracy and the kind of order that we want. And people talk as though you know, this U.S.-Japan relations and, and Japan becoming a democracy happened after 1945. But in fact, there were experiments of democracy even before the war. And and I will say that's partly the reason why Japanese democracy has succeeded. Not because of just, you know, uh, American uh, uh, help. And that was, of course, a very important part of it. But not just that, but there was a sort of a a foundation for democracy. Although sort of it lapsed into a military uh, government, you know, the experiment in the 1910s and the 20s, uh, that sort of helped, you know, Japan recover as a democracy. So you have a, a, you know, a full-blown, mature democracy, shared values. And, and more than that, there are no anti-American sentiment. At least there has been no uh, a, a nationwide anti-American movement in Japan since the early uh, 1970s. There have been some issues related to base, especially in Okinawa. But that's a bit different from you know, anti-American sentiment and anti-American movement, which you have in like, countries like the Philippines. And you clearly have that in uh, South Korea uh, and in some other countries, right? But you don't have that. So, you know, for the U.S. as well, if you had to find a partner, Japan, you know, again, it's nice to have many partners, but Japan would be, be a, a pretty good sort of option or a good uh, 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 a partner for Japan as well. So I think the strength of U.S.-Japan alliance is not that just, just we rely on the U.S. But this reliance, you know, goes back and forth, and it's a reciprocal relations. You know, I sound like, uh, you know, U.S.-Japan alliance uh, is uh, perfectly fine, even under the Trump administration. You know, uh, for, for for the Japanese people, at least, it's kind of like business as usual, because, you know, this is, you know, nothing against the American people, and I'm sure there's some, you know, Trump supporters here, uh, possibly. But, uh for many of the Japanese people who have never visited this country, uh, you know who, know, who only knows America through movies and, and Starbucks or whatever, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Trump sort of uh, uh, represents something, you know, typically American: right? uh, loud, bash, <laughs> arrogant, and that's how, in a way, Americans are seen. I know that's a stereotypical image. You know, I know that's not true, but that's how America is seen. And, like, and, and at the outset, you know, Japan always had a, a little bit of an easiness about relying on the U.S. And the, the relations has been difficult to a certain degree all the time. So people see it as a, a new version of that. Right? So s- somehow there's a sense that U.S.-Japan relations, no matter who the president is, uh, it's business as usual. And... <clears throat> It is, our job, it is not our job to complain. Right? If an American uh, system or the American people chooses a president, we would deal with the president no matter who the president is. Right? So one uh, 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 diplomat of Singapore, uh, uh, Birhari Kaushikhan said that you know, in, in Europe, they might complain, but in Asia, we would adapt. And I think uh, Japan, uh, since uh, Mr. Trump uh, took office, has been engaging in a radical adaptation, and we've been pretty successful at that.
0: East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.